Some time ago, Cheris Nixon gave a series of talks at Holy Trinity Church in Pitlochry. Cherith has adapted the talk specially for this programme. Today we hear about Joseph and his brothers. My Old Testament readings recently have been focusing on Joseph, a really interesting character. I imagine he must have been an irritating siblings for his elder brothers. First of all, he was clearly the apple of his father Israel's eye. Remember the coat of many colours made specially for him? Then... He was supremely tactless. Can you imagine how you would have reacted if your much younger brother had told you two of his dreams and then said that what they meant was that his whole family would bow down and worship him? His older brothers reacted badly. First of all, when he came to meet them out in the wilderness with their flocks, they decided to kill him and tell their father that a wild animal had eaten him. Then, after Brother Reuben intervened on his behalf, they seized him and dumped him in an empty water cistern and left him to sweat while they had their lunch. A passing caravan of slave traders gave them the idea of selling him and taking the money, killing two birds with one stone, no more an annoying younger brother and twenty shekels of silver to divide between them. Ismailite slave traders marched him with their other slaves into Egypt. And you can imagine the suffering the 17-year-old pampered darling of his father went through on the journey. Once in Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And for a while, it looked as though he'd fallen on his feet, because Potiphar liked and respected him and put him in charge of all his household. Sadly, Potiphar's wife decided she fancied the nubile young man and wanted him in her bed. When he refused, she demonstrated that hell really hath no fury like a woman scorned, and told all her household and Potiphar that Joseph had tried to rape her. So he was thrown into prison, where he remained for at least two years. Again, Joseph impressed the warder and was made responsible for all that went on in the prison. While he was there, he correctly interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. And this, after two long years, finally brought him to the notice of Pharaoh. And the rest, as they say is history. He told Pharaoh that the two dreams plaguing him were a forecast of seven years of plenty and seven years of famine in the land, and he advised Pharaoh to appoint commissioners to oversee the storage of grain during the years of plenty. Pharaoh says to his officials, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? And he appoints Joseph as his second in command. One in whom is the Spirit of God. This is the key to Joseph's story. You would think that, having been sold into slavery by his own brothers, he would be tempted to turn his back on God. Why, God, did you let this happen to me? If you cared for me at all, you would have stopped this. Are you really there? But this isn't how he reacted. He remained close to God, and this relationship was apparent to everyone he came into contact with. Potiphar trusted him because he saw that the Lord was with him. The warder left much of the prison routine in Joseph's hands because, again, he saw the Lord was with him. Joseph refused to go to bed with Potiphar's wife, saying, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Far from blaming God for the appalling circumstances in which he found himself, Joseph continued to honour and obey God. 
And finally, when famine strikes the whole area, and his brothers, coming to Egypt to beg for food, stand, stand trembling before him, he sees that all the suffering has been for a purpose. He forgives his brothers and says, And now, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Had Joseph not ended up in Egypt and had not been imprisoned, he would never have come into contact with Pharaoh and famine would have raged throughout the land, killing thousands, including Joseph's own family who came into Egypt to buy food. It's very clear that God did not cause Joseph to suffer. Human agencies managed that very well on their own. There was Joseph's own tactlessness and arrogance that so annoyed his brothers. There was Israel's shocking parenting skills that made his favouritism so apparent. There was his brother's jealousy and cruelty and greed. There was the lust of Potiphar's wife. But out of all this sin and suffering, God brought something wonderful. Lives were saved. God is our sovereign. We may not understand what he is doing, but if we really understand who and what he is, then we will trust him, whatever the circumstances in which we find ourselves. This is exactly what Joseph did. The Bible is, of course, full of God's loving care for us. Psalm 91 says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Romans chapter 8 tells us, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I could go on and on, but I won't. We're never promised freedom from suffering. In fact, just the opposite, because we live in a fallen world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is what we need to focus on. God is God. Omnipotent, omniscient. He doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes this world seems a very dark place and sometimes the circumstances in which we find ourselves seem overwhelming and we begin to focus on them, to obsess about them and to lose sight of the God in whom we should be trusting. We begin to question what he's doing. Do you remember the story of Jesus walking on the rough waters of Lake Galilee and calling to Peter to walk across the lake towards him through the storm. Peter has enough faith to get out of the boat and begin to walk, but then he notices the strong wind, becomes frightened and starts to sink. He forgets the first few moments when he, upheld by the power of his Lord, did something miraculous. He focuses not on Jesus, but on the nasty circumstances, and he begins to sink. And isn't it fatally easy to do just this in our own lives? To wallow in our problems? How on earth do we stop ourselves? I believe the key is in what Paul says in his letter to the church in Philippi. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. There are times when we can't feel joy in our circumstances. But we can always feel joy in our Lord. We can look at the marvels of his creation and praise him for it. We can look back down the years at the way he's guided us and supported us through the difficult times. We can focus on the cross where Jesus, because he loves us, paid such a terrible price to bridge the gap sin had made between God and his people. 
we can sing to ourselves that old chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will be strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Breakfast on Radio 3 hold a carol competition each year. The winner in 2021 was Tamiko Dooley with her setting of Christina Rossetti's poem Love Came Down at Christmas. First we hear Moya Leslie reading the poem. Then the BBC singers perform the carol accompanied by Ken Burton who also arranged the music. Love Came Down at Christmas Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas, star and angels gave the sign. Worship we the Godhead, love incarnate, love divine. Worship we our Jesus, but wherewith for sacred sign. Love shall be our token, love be yours and love be mine. Love to God and all men. Love for plea and gift and sign. Mm-hmm. 
Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he describes the early life of Moses. It all started with a question. My name is Moses, which means pulled out from the reeds. I grew up in Pharaoh's court as the son of a royal princess, and that's all I've ever known. I loved my family, and the one you call Pharaoh was my favorite uncle, and he loved me as well. So why was I so uneasy, as if things weren't as they were supposed to be? There was a question. It came as quite a shock when I found out the truth, that I was found floating in a basket among the rushes on the banks of the Nile, and that my mother was in fact the Hebrew nurse who cared for me, and not the princess who was Pharaoh's sister. To be fair, nobody tried to expose my origins. I was still a mighty prince of Egypt. I wanted to remain so because, as I said, all I knew up to that point was palace life and my secure place in it. Even though we were of the royal family, he insisted we all contribute to the kingdom and assigned us jobs to do. Mine was to oversee the extensive construction of the royal cities he'd planned and to ensure they were well done and in the time frames he'd set. All the work was done by Hebrew slaves who had been in the land for hundreds of years. My uncle didn't like the Hebrews, or more to the point, he was afraid of them. They seemed to multiply no matter what he did, and he feared that if there was ever an attack on the kingdom, they'd join the opposing forces and overthrow him. I'd always felt uneasy at the treatment that the Egyptians forced on the Hebrews, but I kept my peace. After all, it was in my interest to keep quiet and take joy that I wasn't one of them. However, one day I saw an Egyptian mercilessly beating a man because the mortarboard he was carrying was too heavily loaded for him to manage, and he dropped it. I looked around me and saw that no one was looking, so I thrashed this Egyptian bully, but as things turned out, I thrashed him too hard and he died. I had to act quickly, so before anyone noticed, I dug a hole in the sand and buried the man, thinking to hear nothing further about it. Came back to work the next day as usual, and I witnessed two Hebrew men fighting with each other over a task that was left undone. I asked, Why are you striking your companion? He angrily replied, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? I was filled with fear as I realized what I'd done the day before was well known. When I went home, my mother, the sister of Pharaoh, ran up to me, whispering, You've got to go away. Pharaoh is seeking to kill you for what you did to the Egyptian foreman, and the story of your Hebrew origins are now known. Flee! Flee at once, my son! So I ran, and ran, and ran, until the city of Ramses could no longer be seen. I decided to head for the desert, since no one would likely follow me there. I ended up in a land called Midian and stopped to rest by the well. There were sheep and camels everywhere, and they were watering their flocks. One herd was being shepherded by seven sisters, and they were trying to bring their sheep to drink. But they were being harassed and bullied by other shepherds, all of them men. Even though I was tired, I stood up to them and forced them to make way so that they could water their flocks. And the sisters pressed me to go and meet their father and share a meal with them. I could hardly refuse, having eaten virtually nothing since leaving the city. It must have been a strange sight for Ruel, their father. You see, I still had my royal clothes on, and, well, people didn't dress like that in the desert. My hair was short and my beard was trimmed, and even if my clothes were dirty with the long journey, one could see quickly that they were finely made garments. But 
Ruel welcomed me seemingly without noticing these things. He was simply grateful that I'd protected, protected his daughters and helped to water his herds. Strangely enough, as time went by, I grew to like this lifestyle in the wilderness. The work was hard, and we didn't have the time I'd been used to as a member of the royal family, but there was a healthy and wholesome quality to it. I also grew to love this wizened father who had lost his wife to sickness but absolutely adored his seven daughters. Over time as well, I became attracted to Zipporah, Ruel's oldest daughter, and I believed the feelings were mutual. I wasn't sure her father would fancy an Egyptian as a son-in-law, but I had to try. To my surprise, he agreed, and we were wed. So, here's the answer to my question. In this land of Midian, I'm completely happy. The court of Ramses is a distant memory, and I never want to go anywhere else. Maybe I should build a home here, as the Hebrews say, if God willing. And surely he'll allow me to settle down with my lovely wife and growing family. It's the peaceful life for me now. God will take care of you. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you.
Mary Haddow is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today her subject is Perspectives. Some years ago, the Journal of the American Medical Association published an article by Dr. Paul Ruskin on the stages of ageing. And in the article, Dr. Ruskin described a case study that he'd presented to his students when teaching a class in medical school. He described the case study patient that was under his care like this. The patient neither speaks nor comprehends the spoken word. Sometimes she babbles incoherently for hours on end. She is disoriented about person, place and time. She does, however, respond to her name. I have worked with her for the past six months, but she still shows complete disregard for her physical appearance and makes no effort to assist in her own care. She must be fed and bathed and clothed by others. Because she now has no teeth, her food must be pureed. Her shirt is usually soiled from almost incessant drooling. She does not walk. Her sleep pattern is erratic. Often she wakes in the middle of the night and her screaming awakens others. Most of the time, though, she is friendly and happy. But several times a day she gets quite agitated without apparent cause and then she wails until someone comforts her. And after presenting the class with this challenging case, Dr. Ruskin then asked his students if any of them would like to volunteer to take care of this person. No one in the auditorium volunteered. Then Dr. Ruskin said, I'm surprised that none of you offered to help because actually she is my favourite patient. I get immense pleasure from taking care of her and I am learning so much from her. She has taught me a depth of gratitude I never knew before. She has taught me the spirit of unwavering trust and she has taught me the power of unconditional love. And then Dr. Ruskin said, let me show you her picture. And he pulled out the picture and it was passed around. It was a photo of his six-month-old baby daughter. Now I like that story for several reasons. For one thing, it shows the importance of perspective. And it shows us how essential it is to have all the facts before we make a decision. Our New Testament reading today from Luke 2, 25 to 38 tells us of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to be presented at the temple. There they encounter an old man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And Simeon's name means God hears. Simeon has no title in this story. He's not a member of the religious classes. He's simply an old man who's called righteous, Sadiq, that word we spoke of last week, Sadiq and devout. And yet Simeon has the supreme honour of being the first one to announce that Jesus' salvation is for all people, all people. Simeon, Simeon was not fooled by an innocent looking child. 
when he takes the baby Jesus in his arms, he sees something more. And he says, this child is destined to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. And he will be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the hearts of many will be revealed. There's also an old woman in the temple, a prophetess named Anna. And all we know about Anna is that she served the God with fa- she served God with fasting and prayers night and day. Yet she too recognised that she was in the presence of the Messiah, and she broadcast that news to everyone she encountered. We do not know what this new year will bring. Few of us probably think that it will bring world peace. And yet the earth can know peace. But not through military power or peaceful protest. Peace is found in the arms of an aged old man named Simeon in an ancient town called Bethlehem. Peace is found in the Christ child proclaimed by an old woman called Anna. And this peace comes only to those who are serious about this child and who he hears what he has to teach us and who walk in his ways.
Cause he's the light of the Gentiles and the glory.